Oh, Father, I pray that you would bless these prayers, these people who take their time, who show their love, who show concern by carrying someone else's name before the throne of the Most High God, these intercessors. And I pray, Lord, that you would raise up more of them so that our church is literally filled with people who are burdened to pray and actually do pray, and they pray in a way where their prayers are answered, they have power, they have holiness, they have grace, and they also know and understand and discern the will of God, and they learn from the Word of God how it is that we ought to pray. Bless us, Lord, and teach us, as the disciples said, teach us to pray. And I pray, Lord, for people who are the subject of our prayers. And there are so many, and so many things that we know, and so many things that we don't know about people, and yet you know. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're the supreme one, because the Bible says you ever live to make intercession for us. Father, forgive us for all of the times when we value a, a prayer of a fellow believer above the prayer of Jesus. And we are always grateful to have people pray for us, but no one can pray for us like the Lord Jesus can. And the scripture says that he indeed does. He knows, he understands, and he prays for us in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our problems. And we want to thank you that we learn as we study the life of Daniel in Sunday school that for all of us, whatever it is we go through, whatever lion's dens or fiery furnaces we may face, we learn one thing, that it's important to be faithful to God and we know that you are always faithful to us and that we are in a win-win situation. And so, Lord, for the church, we pray that you would bless us. May we learn from your word. May we grow. May we be more impactful. May we be more effective. May you open doors for us to reach our community, our metro area, our state, our nation, and even the world right here from Graceway. And we pray, Father, that we would also have love like we've never had before, love for Christ, love for the Word, love for church, love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, wherever they may be, and love for the lost so we might share Jesus with them and pray for them and meet any needs that we can. I pray, Father, that you would Bless us so that personally we would overcome sin, that personally we would be the people that you want us to be and that we would be making progress in you. And we pray also, Lord, that we would see things happening that are beyond just explanation scientifically or medically or any other way, that we would see the power of God at work and lives in healing people and in restoring marriages, in restoring relationships and a family and providing jobs and material possessions for people as well as health. But we also pray, Father, that we wouldn't forget all the times you have done that so many times. Thank you for the way that you have worked. Thank you for the way that you are working, whether we see it or feel it or not. And thank you for the way that we will work and thank you, Lord, that one day we'll all be culminated when we are with the Lord Jesus Christ forever in heaven. And we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. But until then, 
I pray that by your grace you would find us faithful to you. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all so very much. If you would turn in your Bibles, please, again, to 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to look at uh, chapter 4. And we're going to entitle this, Love Always Hits the Bullseye. In other words, you never go wrong with love. And love should motivate everything. For example, the Bible says that God disciplines us, but He does it because He loves us. So love is not always this ushy-gushy, touchy-feely, everything positive type of thing. It can even be the hard things. It can be the confronting somebody over sin, but you do that because you love them and you're to do it in love. Preaching the Word of God with love, being in church for, uh, out of love, the way that you raise your children is in love. All of these things are done in love because it always hits the bullseye. And if you are going in love by what you see on a Hallmark movie, you're going to be way off base on that. You need to read 1 Corinthians 13 and get it firmly in your heart and mind what love really is. And the Lord Jesus said it like this, Greater love has no man than that one should lay down his life for his friends. And he did that, of course, for us. And I find it interesting that after uh, the first part of chapter 4, where Paul talks about the will of God is our sanctification, that we abstain from immorality, and we look last week at what Roman culture was like and how sordid and perverted and disgusting and gross and pervasive that it all was, Paul didn't want them falling into that and sinking into what they had been raised with, what they had learned all of their life. There was a new standard. And Christianity confronted the Roman Empire because instead of just letting men do whatever they want, whenever they wanted, with whomever they pleased, men were called to be monogamous, faithful to their wives, and wives were to be faithful to their husband, raising children in the context of an intact family and that was something that the roman empire could not handle and it's part of the reason that the empire eventually fell the morality of christians confronted everything they believed and isn't that true for our day as well if you're a virgin when you get married in this culture you're weird and yet that's what we're supposed to be God's peculiar people, aren't we? If you're a person that works ethically, you have a good worth ethic and you also have a morality in the way that you work. You earn what you're paid for. You don't steal from your boss. You don't try to fudge on your time and all of that. You're weird. I got called out one time for that. Me and a friend of mine where we were working and we were called and told by the other workers, you're making us look bad, slow down and slack off. But of course we couldn't do that because we were doing it for the glory of the Lord. If you do that, you are weird. And all of these things make us stand out and give us opportunities to evangelize. It may attract some unwanted attention as well, but so be it. And so Paul tells the Thessalonian believers, the cure for this immorality, the cure for all of this junk is if you would quit being filled with lust and greed and covetousness and using and objectifying other people, if you would actually love them, it would settle the whole issue. Paul said in another place, Romans chapter 13 verses 8 through 10, I want you just to listen to this. Owe no one anything except 
to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as, you, uh, as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so Paul is saying to them the answer to all of this. How do I handle my lust? How do I handle my past sexual misconduct? How do I do all of this in a Christian uh, environment? And Paul said, here's the bottom line. You've got to learn to love. And you've got to learn to love not in the way that the world defines it, but in the way Christ defines it. Love gives. Love is a self-sacrificing, a meeting need type of thing, a concern for other people. It gives to other people rather than simply taking or expecting other people to gratify you, to satisfy you, to meet your needs. And so in a whole context of things, not just sexually, not just in a moral sense, but in every part of our relationship, love answers every problem. You don't lie about somebody that you love. You don't gossip about somebody that you truly love. And that's the point that Paul is making. And that's why Jesus said the great commandment is to love the Lord with all you've got. And then the second is with it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Paul amplifies that. So with that being said and understanding that Paul is giving the cure the prescription for everything that was a problem in the Thessalonian church and in the society in which they live so we read about it in 1st Thessalonians 4 verses 9 through 12 okay let's start reading at verse 9 but concerning brotherly love you have no need that I should write to you for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, non-believers, and that you may lack nothing. So Paul says, here's the deal. Quit living like the world and do something the world can't do and actually love one another with a godly, brotherly love. The word brotherly uh, uh, love there is the word um, adelphos, and it uh, is the word that means from the same womb, from the same womb. And so when you see like Philadelphia, the phila part is the word for, Greek word for love. And the Adelphia is adelphos, which is the same womb, brotherly love. And that's the way we're to treat each other. And so why would that be the cure for sexually immorality, uh, sexual immorality? And it cures it because Paul would tell Timothy later on, he would say, you treat the older men and the older women as fathers and mothers and treat the younger women and the younger men as brothers and sisters. And so you don't commit immorality with your sister. 
or your brother. Do you treat them differently because of who they are? You're in the same family. And we're in the same family, the family of God. You've known people that would fight and fuss sometimes with their brother and sister, but if anyone else said anything about them, then they would stick together on that. Well, we are supposed to stick together as we walk through this world, as we are attacked by the enemy, as we fight against a wicked culture, we are to stay together as, fa- as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the cure for everything that ails us. So here's my question. If it doesn't need to be written about, why did Paul write about it? Ever wondered that? If it doesn't need to be written, you don't need this, but I'm going to do it anyway, he said. Is that just what preachers do? Tell us everything we already know? uh, Bore us with all of it and repeat it all again? Well, sometimes. But is that what his point is here? And I don't think so. And I think the reason that he says, you don't need me to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway, is because it reveals some things about us. Number one, have you ever noticed? We tend to ignore what we know is right. There are so many times you have said it, don't look spiritual, you have said, I knew I shouldn't have done this. Before I ever did it. You ever said that? You ever heard anybody say that? Well, why do you do? I mean, listen, it is double stupid to know that something is bad and you do it anyway. It's one thing to stumble into it. It's one thing to be ignorant. But it's another thing to go, oh, this is going to be terrible. I mean, go up to a bear trap that is ready to spring and go, I know I shouldn't do this, and then stick your foot in it, and then complain because it hurts? That's dumb. And that's why God calls us sheep. Sheep are not all that smart. We're pretty dumb, aren't we? Dumb, stinking sheep. And Paul writes this because he says, you know this. God has written it on your heart. You know why he put it in there? Because we tend to ignore the things that we know. You know, the Bible says something about that. Scripture tells us in uh, the book of James, it tells us, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is ah, just a mistake. I just messed up. Well, I'm just a mess. Well, nobody's perfect. No, that's not what it says. It says, if you know to do it and you don't do it, then it is to you sin that's something that needs to be confessed that's something that you need first john 1 9 on that's something that has to be repented of that's not just something you tolerate that's not just something you excuse it's not just something that you say well that's just me and it's just my personality no that is a target of something that needs to be worked on and so paul is seeing a deficiency in this church you know this But like all of us, you have the same tendency to ignore what you know. Can I tell you something that would revolutionize our church? Ready for it? It's just this simple. If everybody in the church would just do what they know to do, that's not revolutionary, is it? Yeah, it is. Because there's so many things you could answer and you could 
give the right answer to and you could encourage someone else to do but you're not doing it yourself and if we could all just do what we know to do and what is right it would change everything why because number one this is a sin issue we tend to ignore what we know is right there's another time there's a better way there's a different situation i'm going to get to that one of these days all of those kind of things happen so paul had to write this even though it was shouldn't have been necessary for them but he had to because of that one situation god is love and when we get saved the presence of god comes to live within us and it mandates love you have the capacity to love one another because god the holy spirit is within you so just do it just do it just do it is what paul is saying number two paul had to write about this because we tend to love from a distance notice how he said oh indeed you do toward all the brethren in all macedonia now when i read that i thought well that's nice they loved other churches and other people, other believers, and that's really good. But you know what it seems to be implying? They loved other people far off more than they loved the people that were right around them. And I get that. You know, the best Christians you know live a thousand miles away, right? I mean, if you think about your favorite radio preacher or somebody like that oh boy if only our pastor could do that and i'd probably be the first to say amen except if you were around them all the time you'd probably find he has some of the same problems that i do we have human problems all together you just don't see his i've been on mission trips with this church and other groups and we look around at people and we go, oh, man, these people are just so wonderful. I just love these people. I hate to go home. It's amazing all the things that they do. And then we come back here and it's like, yeah, we come back here with all these duds. We come back here with all these losers. We come back here with all these compromisers, with all these apathetic people. You know what? They have it on the mission field too. You just don't see it. Because you see them for that mission trip, for that time, you see them at their best. When you see them just from their website or just from something on the internet, you see them at their best. You don't meet them in the hallway when somebody ignores you. You ever come to church and had somebody not speak to you? I remember one time I was here at a funeral that I wasn't conducting and I was sitting back there in that back section on the front of it and uh, sitting there with my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, my wife, and others. And there were some people that came through. They shook hands and hugged everybody but me. They didn't even speak to me. They walked right past me. You ever had that happen in church? I've had it happen several times. I know what that's like. You know what that's like. Why does God allow that? Well, for one thing, it exposes the fact that we're not as loving as we ought to be, doesn't it? The other thing, too, it shows us the pain and the hurt of being mistreated so that we make sure that we don't do that inadvertently to other people. Because some of the people that gripe the most about nobody speaking to them are the first ones to leave, the last ones to come in, and they don't go out of their way for anybody else. Well, see, it ought not be that way. We use our pain and we use the things that embarrass us. We use the things that hurt us and make us more tender 
more compassionate and more loving. Isn't that what it's supposed to do? And yet you find that Paul, as he was writing to these people, he seems to be implying all of that love that you could give to that church 500 miles away, that offering that you sent to them, those prayers that you offered for them, that admiration that you had for them needs to be applied right here in the local body as well. So I don't love somebody who's in California and think, oh boy, if I could just have a friend like that, you become friends with the people that are around you. And the true test of love is to be that way with sinners like you, with flaws like you, who are messed up like you are messed up, and yet there is this one bond that cannot be broken, and that is the fact that we are one in the bond of love, and that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that good? Say amen if it is. That's the way it ought to be. And yet Paul was saying that even in this excellent church, this exemplary church, this elect church, as we look back in uh, chapter 1 at the introduction, they still had their problems. And I don't care where you go. You know the old saying is, if you ever find a perfect church, don't you join it, you'll mess it up. Because there are no perfect churches, because there are no perfect people. We're growing and we are learning. We all wear masks to some degree. There are some times when we criticize people. Well, people just aren't real. And yet when they are real and they tell you everything that's going on in your life, then you go, ooh, ah, I feel like they just vomited all over me, right? And then there are other times when we ourselves don't tell everybody everything that's going on in our lives. Sometimes we cover it up too much. Sometimes we let too much out. And finding that perfect place to where we can be real, where we can ask for help, where we can let other people know they need to pray for us, and to be from the place where we're not just burdening other people down and uh, destroying them and their joy. How do you do that? I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a prescription for that. But I know the Holy Spirit knows. And I know that if we are all under the control of the Holy Spirit, that love will take care of that. And all of those things will be taken care of. And they'll be done in the right order. But our problem is we are so critical of the people right around us. And we think everybody in every other place, boy, they have the answers. They really walk with God. They really know how it's done. And the truth is, they have the same problems that we do. Do you know that John MacArthur came into a staff meeting one time at his big, great church with all of his ministries and everything? And I have great admiration for him. And he walked into the staff meeting and said, Hello, brothers, it's good to see you today. I'm glad that you're my friends. Only to have someone stand up and say, If you think we're your friends, you've got another thing coming and the entire staff led a mutiny and tried to split the church. What? Those kind of things happened with him? Yeah. You know why? Because those people in his church are just like the people sitting around you. The human nature that we have is shared everywhere we go, isn't it? And that's why we've got to fight to overcome that. We've got to die to self. We've got to surrender to the Lord so that He lives through us and controls our lives, our feelings, our emotions, the way we look at other people, the way that we treat other people. 
Sometimes Jesus was direct, blunt, and harsh with certain people, wasn't he? But he did it out of love. And sometimes he was kind, compassionate, and always very patient. And he did it out of love. And you know what? The Jesus in you knows how to treat other people that are all around you. And it's just a matter of surrender to him. And so Paul said, we have this tendency. I've got to write this to you, even though it doesn't need it. Because you're loving everybody except the people that are real close to you. And that are right around you. Because that's kind of human nature. That's why a lot of people have affairs. That woman over there. Boy, she's so much better than the one I have to live with every day. But that man over there, he's so kind, considerate, and understanding, better than the bum that I live with over here. Kids always want different parents. I wish my parents were more like Johnny's parents. All of that kind of stuff. That is human nature. It's sinful. It's wicked. And it is wrong. And the only thing that can overcome that is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that brings us then to... Another one, and uh, let's consider this number three. Paul had to write this because we tend to let our love stagnate. Stagnate. Happens in marriage, doesn't it? It happens as family members take each other for granted. I don't suppose I've ever conducted a funeral and met with a grieving family that at least one person out of that group, out of the immediate family, at least one, sometimes more, They didn't say something like, if I had only known they were going to die now, I would have treated them better last Tuesday, last Friday, yesterday. I would have been closer. I would have been around them more. I would have had kinder words. I would have bought them flowers before they died. When we lived in Georgia... We had an African-American man, Mr. Leon, that was our custodian at our church. And he and I spent a lot of time talking. He was older than I was, quite a bit older, in fact. And we were talking one time, and he said, uh, You know, my wife has always been wanting a new uh, bedroom suit for our house. And I kept telling her, You know we can't afford that. You know we can't afford that. And he said, And then as I was thinking about it, and I was kind of mad because she was saying something about that, he said, I felt a hunch from the Spirit of God. And he goes, and the thoughts came to my mind. You say you can't afford the money for the bedroom furniture, but you would afford thousands of dollars for a funeral. Maybe you should buy flowers for her while she's alive. And by flowers, that was a metaphor for bedroom furniture. You know what? We're like that in families, aren't we? We all have those people when they die, we have those unexpressed emotions, unexpressed love. We wish we had done more. We wish we had done better. We wish that we had taken the time. But we were so busy. We had places to go. We had things to do. We had people to see. All so important until we got that phone call. And then everything went on hold, didn't it? Everything hit pause. We had time for them now that we should have had before. And I know you got to live life. you got to work. I understand all of that. I'm just saying there are some times when we need to remember what that man told me 
sometimes it's better to buy flowers for the living than to wait for them at the funeral. Paul is saying here, you know what we have this tendency to do? We take other people for granted. They're always going to be here, always going to be here. Have you missed Brother Bob being at the doors out here? But there was a time when he did it so often and his health was so good, it's almost like you took for granted, oh, he'll be there next Sunday. He'll be there next Sunday. Oh, he'll always be there. Yeah, it's just Brother Bob. Now we miss him when he's not. Now, thank the Lord we still have him with us. And we look forward to having him back out there. But how many times have we taken somebody for granted? Might be a mom. Might be a dad. Might be a child. It might be a friend. I mean, who hasn't? And when they're taken, you look at them and say, Oh, I wish I had one more day. I wish I had one more time. I wish I had one more lunch. I wish I had one more card that I could write. I wish I could make one more phone call. Then I'd really tell them, Hey, beloved, now is probably the time to do that and stop taking it for granted because love has this tendency, yeah, it's there, but it's stagnant. It's not growing. It's not increasing. It's just kind of laying there. And Paul said, I want this love that you have. I want it to be something that increases and then he said more and more it never stops it gets bigger i love you more today the song says than yesterday is that true it ought to be for a believer it ought to be for us that we love our church more now than we ever did we love the people of god more now than we ever did our love for each other even in our family it ought to be growing and not to be just a stagnant love. We urge you, he says. That uh, is not just, oh, if it happens, it happens. Uh, hope it happens, may not. Urging you, he is begging you. He is saying this is of utmost importance. We urge you, brethren, believers, fellow believers, that you increase more and more in this love. This is all in context. Okay? And so we are to grow in that your capacity for love to receive it and to give it ought to be greater now than it was a year ago or a decade ago i hope it is and yet we find some people as they get older their capacity for love seems to shrink it seems like they are less loving and more cynical than they were when they were younger well i'm not asking you to be naive i'm not asking you to be pollyanna-ish or whatever that means or any of those kind of things I'm just asking you to let the Lord fill your life and let Him control more of your life today than yesterday. And because God is love, He will love through you more than at other times. And you will also be able to see the love that is expressed from other people more than you could before. Number four. we are. Paul had to write this because... We're selfish, and we want things to go our way. Okay, now, stay with me. It's going to seem weird. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life and to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we 
commanded you that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Okay, what does that have to do with selfishness? That sounds unselfish. Here's the point. Paul told them to do that because they weren't doing that. They weren't minding their own business. They weren't walking properly toward outsiders. They weren't leading a quiet life. They weren't doing any of that, working with their own hands. So what, what in the world is going on here? Well, you remember Paul had only been in Thessalonica about a month. And so he was able to teach them some basics about doctrine, theology. And one of the things was about the second coming of Christ. But he wasn't there long enough to teach them everything they needed to know or what they were to do with that. And so we find as we read First and Second Thessalonians together, we find out that something was happening in the church. People were going, well, if Jesus is coming, why am I going to work tomorrow? If Jesus is coming, why am I making my car payments? If Jesus is coming again, why am I paying on my mortgage? Well, you know as well as I do, if you had done that, if I had done that, we'd be in a world of hurt right now, wouldn't we? And so what they were doing in Thessalonica is they were just putting on their white robes, so to speak, and standing on the mountaintop. You going to go to work today? No, I'm waiting for the Lord. Doesn't that sound pious and spiritual and holy? Man, I wish I had the faith that guy had. Yeah, but that guy in all of his faith can't pay his mortgage. He can't buy his kids clothes. He's not able to pay for his school lunches. He's not able to make the car payment. He's not able to buy tires for his car. I mean, think about that. And what was happening is that guy that was on the mountaintop with all that great faith was coming back to the church and he was looking at you and he noticed that you just bought a new car and it's a nice car and it's a, a brand that is kind of high end and he goes, hey, that person's got some money. Maybe he's looking at the jewelry that you're wearing or the brand of clothing that you have on and he's been on the mountaintop having faith waiting for jesus but now he can't pay his bills so he comes back to you and he said hey brother hey sister i need some help and i've noticed here that you have the means to help me so you're supposed to love and you're supposed to give and these people that were not working because they were waiting on Jesus were putting pressure on the other people. They weren't living a quiet life. They were involving themselves in everybody else's life. Always looking for a $5 bill or a $100 bill or evidence of money or something like that. Always putting the touch. Looking for somebody who had a tender heart. Looking for somebody who was like Ado Annie. Remember that? They can't say no. You ever seen anybody like that? I can tell you, and I could name some of them, some evangelists, that when they come into a church to preach a revival meeting, strangely enough, they always make friends with the doctors. But not the carpenters. Huh. What a coincidence. I guess they just have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. Chuching. Right? This is what was going on in Thessalonica. 
Everybody was noticing everybody else, and it was going like this. Well, it's obvious you've got the money to help me, and I can't believe that you would let my children go hungry. And Paul is saying, you know what you need to do? Shut your mouth, mind your own business. In other words, pay your own bills, take care of your own finances, and get a job and go to work that you may live properly toward outsiders. And, I mean, because these people were looking like nuts and fools, weren't they? And then they couldn't pay their bills to the lost guy down the street. And so now he's thinking, oh, that's what Christians do. They're lazy. They go on the mountaintop. They wait for Jesus. They make charges and they don't pay their bills. That's what they do. I mean, how are you going to evangelize that guy? And then you know what else was happening? Let's flip that around. Let's say I'm the rich guy and I help you out and I give you $1,000 to pay your mortgage or to catch up on it or something like that. And you know what I'm going to do if I don't do what Paul said? I'm going to be watching you. Because it's going to tick me off if I give you money because you can't pay your mortgage and then you go, whoo, oh, by the way, we're going on a cruise next week. All of a sudden, I'm ticked off. And I'm feeling like, what have I just done if I'm helping you? Now, this is what was happening in the church. Should church members help each other? Yes. Should we support each other? Yes, any way that we can. But Paul said, this is getting way out of hand. This is not loving. You are taking, you're not giving. You're looking at everybody else as a resource. You're looking at them as a cash cow, to use an old expression. You're looking at everybody else as... Uh, a banker or somebody who can loan you money or give you money and then you get all in a knot and all upset because I'm in that church and nobody's helping me. See the me, the me, the me, the me, the me, the me. Everything's coming your direction. You're not a giver, you're a taker. You're not a lover, you're greedy for what everybody else has and you're not really laying down your life for them, you're expecting them to lay down their life for you. And that is the problem. So many times when we preach on how Christians ought to live, there are some of you who sit there and you go, well, they're not doing that, well, they're not doing that, well, they're not doing that, well, nobody did that for me. How do you worship God? First of all, are you even saved? And secondly, if you are, how do you walk with God and how do you work with God, worship God and walk with Him? How do you do that with that kind of an attitude? You see what's happening? And so Paul is saying, love answers all of these and I don't have to write you, but I'm going to because of these very reasons. Are these reasons still true in human, saved church members today huh i think they are i think paul nailed it i think he caught us right where we need to be which shows us that love is not an emotion it's not a feeling it's not something that we work up it's not something that we wait to hit us it's not something that we fall into it's a choice it's a choice that we make I will love you because you are loved by the Lord. It's also a commitment. Lord, I'm surrendering myself. I don't like that person very much, but I'm commanded to love them and I don't know how to love them. Everything I do rubs them the wrong way. Lord, you're going to have to uh, love them through 
me. You know how to do this. And it's going to be rough and it may not be easy, but I'm committed to doing what you have commanded me to do in your word and to love them, right? It's the kind of thing that is supposed to be increasing, isn't it? Lord, I love this person, but I don't love them enough. And I don't have the capacity to increase my love. It's not like a tire you can inflate. You're going to have to pour more love through me. And by the way, maybe the reason you have trouble loving other people is because you don't realize just how much God loves you. And it's as you get a greater knowledge of the love of God for you that you have a greater capacity to love other people. Maybe that's where it needs to start. And maybe you need to get to know your God a whole lot better because he actually is the theme. So there they are, all messed up, quitting working, expecting Jesus to come back. And then when he doesn't, they have bills to pay, sponging off of the wealthier members and the wealthier members scrutinizing everything that they do. And uh, nobody's really getting along like they should in all of this. And Paul said, you know, you are uh, supposed to love and you know you're supposed to love but I'm going to write about this because you have some tendencies and this is recorded in the word because we have tendencies as well. In other words, to put it like this, to dwell above with the saints we love, oh, that will be grace and glory. But to dwell below with the ones we know, well, that's another story. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? Yeah. How do you handle that? What do you do? You have to be filled with love. And the Bible says that God is love. And so when we are asking you to be more loving, we're asking you to be more filled with God, more under His control, in other words, in everything. When we ask you to love another person, we're asking you to be godly toward another person. How did God treat you when you were a sinner? How does God treat you when you still sin? What, what, what's going on? What, and shouldn't I do that toward other people? And the answer, of course, would be a resounding yes. Because one of these days, this will all be solved when we get to heaven. But God said, I want you to work on it down here because you'll appreciate it a whole lot more when you get to heaven if you've struggled with it down here this is preparation for heaven and he tells us that we are to love one another but concerning brotherly love you have no need that i should write to you for you yourselves are taught by god to love one another and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who were in all macedonia but we urge you brethren that you increase more and more that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, have credibility in your witness, in other words, and lack nothing. God provides through your work, right? So you love as you know you should. You love and respect those closest to you. 
You let your love be godly, mature, and growing, increasing, and you let it flow out rather than always expecting it to come your way. Think about that, will you? And then put it into practice and watch how it changes your life. Relationships will get better and the blessing of God will be upon you as He flows through you in the way that you treat and act toward other people. Okay? I appreciate your time so much. You've been very attentive. May the Lord bless you. And could we close in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we have everything we need in Jesus. And we gladly boast in that and talk about that, discuss that, sing about that, but we rarely put it into practice. Forgive us and correct us and help us to love with the love of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor.